When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Greg Prado joins Nate to talk about his book, Dark Black and Blue, The Soundgarden Story. Nate and Greg discuss how Soundgarden helped build the nascent grunge scene in Seattle, wrote it to the top of the charts, broke up, finally reunited, only to endure the tragic death of singer Chris Cornell. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Greg Predow, author of Deep Sorry, Dark, Black, and Blue, The Soundgarden Story. Greg, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? Going well. Thanks for coming on. So, Soundgarden. At one point in the book, you, you have a quote from an interview with their guitarist, Kim Thale, where you ask him if grunge wasn't the last rock and roll movement to impact the culture. Do you think it was? Yeah, I mean, um, there have definitely been other movements uh, since then uh, that have affected, uh, I know, like rock music. But as far as culture, I would say grunge was the last, definitely the most fully sweeping one. I know since then there's been other things like uh, in the early 21st century, you had all those New York bands like the uh, Strokes and all those types of bands. And then before that, you had new metal. And then you had a very dangerous style of music called rap metal, which I really don't like. But uh, <laughs> no one does. <laughs> so, I mean, there has been other movements, but as far as a movement that uh, went far beyond music and affected um, uh, fashion and politics and really just uh, society uh, overall, I think grunge was really the, the last uh, uh, thorough one. And Soundgarden's unique in that movement because they're the only group that I would consider to be one of the f- sort of little six of original underground 80s Seattle bands. I'd, I'd, I'd include Soundgarden in there with Green River and Andrew Wood's Malfunction and the Melvins and the U-Men. And they're also part of the big four of grunge, which is Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden, who enjoyed massive commercial success in the 90s. So this is the only group, I mean, there were members of Green River who were in Pearl Jam and 
that's pretty much it. The connection of the original scenesters that started the grunge scene in, in the mid eighties in Seattle, who took it all the way. So Soundgarden's unique in that, that they, they were there at the beginning. They stayed together, although they changed out, uh, had a, a early change in drummers and then changed their bass players to midstream in the early nineties. But they're the only ones that went through the whole period. Do you feel like that makes them the most representative or the definitive grunge band? Yeah, I think I would agree with that. For me personally, although I am a huge fan of Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, and Mudhoney, and uh, all the other uh, great grunge bands, uh, for me personally, Soundgarden by far was always my favorite grunge band. I mean, they're really one of my all-time favorite uh, rock bands ever. I'd say they're my second overall, number one being Queen and Soundgarden being uh, two. So I'm always going to say that Soundgarden was the greatest grunge band. So uh, yeah, no, they and I also agree that they were uh one of the first grunge bands and they were also from that first wave the only band that was able to stay together and get signed to a major label and then after getting signed to the major label were able to have a great amount of uh, commercial success as well so let's talk about their formation a little bit one point that you keep bringing up is that because of the ethnicity of the guitar player kim thale who's indian american and the original bassist hiro yamamoto who's japanese american that they're in a way kind of a POC band, a people of color band. Talk about that a little bit and if you feel like that makes any important distinction or were they basically culturally white boys? Well, I mean, for me, what's very interesting, if you look at the late 60s, you had bands like Sly and the Family Stone that was also <clears throat> multicultural and you had also Santana that was also the same way. But as rock went on throughout the 70s and 80s, it got very kind of like segregated for some reason. I don't know why. So uh, that was a very, I think that is a very unique thing about Soundgarden was that that lineup uh, had several different people of different, you know, backgrounds and everything. So that I think also made them very uh, different and unique, because especially if you think of the late 80s, besides just uh, that, as far as music, it was very, very cut and dry with hair metal and thrash metal and you know it really was totally everything was very separated at that point so yeah i think that's what also made soundgarden very unique at that point and one interesting thing about soundgarden is even though that they're seen as sort of a black sabbath or led zeppelin influenced sort of not quite a 70s revival band but definitely a 70s influence band a heavy rock band who were initially promoted as sort of alternative metal when that was a category but from their own perspective, they saw themselves as heirs to sort of the British post-punk tradition, bands like Bauhaus and PIL and American groups like the Butthole Surfers. How do you explain that dichotomy? And do you hear that? Well, yeah, that's the thing that made Soundgarden unique was that uh, they were, I think, the first band to get it right by merging a lot of the post-punk bands. Like, for instance, I always thought that the band Joy Division was a very big influence on Soundgarden. So uh, if they were the first band to really get it right with mixing, say, Joy Division with Sabbath. And when I say got it right, meaning that it actually made sense when they all when it, when it all came together for them. I mean, although I am a fan and I can appreciate the band Green River, they attempted to, I think, combine metal with punk, but they had some success, but Soundgarden, I think, really pulled it off much, much better. So, yeah, that was what I think also I love so much about Soundgarden was that they uh, were not opposed to touching upon a variety of different styles. And going back to why I said Queen is my favorite all time band, because they also were fearless with 
taking on a wide variety of styles. And that's also what makes, for instance, David Bowie such a uh, great artist as well, because I tend to always appreciate bands that were able to not just get stuck on just one style and were able to take on a bunch of things. But then again, as soon as that those words just actually left my mouth, my third favorite band of all time is ACDC with Bon Scott. And I admit that they were a bit of a quote unquote one dimensional band, but I absolutely love them. So I guess it just it's just a band by band type of uh, thing. And so Soundgarden forms in the mid 80s in Seattle, and it takes a while before they are what you would consider a working band. I mean, they're playing in local clubs, but to virtually no one. And they're part of a very insular scene in Seattle that, you know, occasionally you might get a band like DOA coming down from British Columbia or, you know, these very rare shows where somebody like Black Flag would come all the way up to Seattle. But basically Seattle was in this vacuum where no no touring bands hit, uh, at least from the underground scene. And so they were just bubbling along in their own scene. How did they take the steps to become more of a professional band and get the attention of first local labels and then major labels? Well, that's definitely a major thing. What made that scene so so great is that they were far away from everything, or so it seems. So like you, like you just said, a lot of the touring bands, especially the punk bands, not all of them traveled all the way up to uh, Seattle. So, um, I mean, that definitely had, uh, that definitely had something to do with it. I mean, even if you just see pic, well, if you saw pictures of what people from Seattle in the late eighties, like, you know, if you see how Kurt Cobain was dressed, he's wearing flannel shirts and also ripped up jeans and also uh, beat up, uh, Converse sneakers. Whereas if you were to switch on, say, uh, good old MTV, you're going to see guys with huge hair and spandex and everything. So. I think the grunge bands, from where they were located, it was a much much more regular look and a more kind of like common man look. So that's what also made them also unique. And then the fact that uh, someone in the book talks about it was a very, very close-knit community. So you'd go to one show uh, with, say, Soundgarden starting out, and all the same people in that audience would then go the next week to go see Green River, and then the next week we go see the uh, Melvins. So it was just a very close knit group of people that would go from show to show and would probably compare the bands and talk about what they liked about each band, what they didn't like about each band. So it definitely got kind of focused a bit probably through that. And so their first re- recording were for a very small label. I mean, everybody knows about Sub Pop, the S- Seattle Indie, and we'll talk about them in a minute. But before they recorded for Sub Pop, they were on a compilation called the Deep Six Compilation by CZ Records. Talk about that a little bit and the other bands and why that compilation, in retrospect, seems apocal. I mean, it's got Soundgarden, the Melvins, Andrew Wood's Malfunction, Green River, the U-Men, Skin Yard, and yet it had zero impact at the time. Right. Well, CZ Records, I mean, even even to this day, isn't the uh, best known uh, label. So, I mean, back then it like really, really wasn't known because it was just starting out. But I mean, just the fact that someone, you know, CZ Records and also Sub Pop, those labels, you have to give them all the credit in the world for being able to realize that their scene did have great worthwhile bands that was that that were worth investing money into and making compilations and also promoting because at the time, of course, you were not going to be able to get on radio. Uh, you weren't going to get on regular radio. So you had to uh, do local radio. You had to do also college radio. College radio 
really was the key back in the 80s for uh, promoting all these bands because there was a whole entire um, thing with uh, touring. It was like a touring circuit that a lot of these underground bands would follow that. Interesting. I think they even, uh, it's even mentioned in the book that it was a underground touring circuit that pretty much black flag back in the early 80s created. And then all the other bands just kept on following. So that was kind of interesting to also learn about that in the book. So, yeah, I would say definitely college radio at the time helped promote the uh, the uh, CZ compilation and also the uh, sub pop releases as well. And let's hear a little taste of that. This is All Your Lies by Soundgarden from the Deep Six composition compilation on CZ Records. Soundgarden's recording debut, All Your Lies, from the Deep Six compilation on CZ Records. And you can hear the thinness of the sound, and it's just not there yet. And the massive heaviness of sound is something that's pretty much captured on their first sub-pop release. Um, tell us about that. This, and tell us about sub-pop, the relationship with Soundgarden, and that first couple of EPs they did. Right, well, uh, Soundgarden were friends with the two gentlemen that uh, formed uh, sub-pop. Uh, which were uh, Bruce Pavitt and also Jonathan Pondman. Uh, Kim uh, Kim Thiel was, I, I, I think, friends with both of them. And he actually talks about in the book that uh, if one person is to take credit for helping start the idea that both of them should come together, it was actually Kim, because uh, Bruce Pavitt at the time uh, was the host of a, uh, of a radio show and also a um, paper called, uh, it was called Subterranean Pop, and uh, he had a lot of really good contacts with uh, record labels and also radio. And then John Poneman uh, had uh, some funds that he could actually put inside a, a startup record label. So he told them both, uh, Kim told both Bruce and John, if you both came together, I think both of what you guys have, you'd be able to put together a label. So that's how Sub Pop came to be. So, uh, yeah, you could say that Kim from Soundgarden had a very big part in what eventually became Sub Pop Records. And so they do an EP, Screaming Life, and then a, another one uh, called the FOP EP that's a shorter compilation, but they don't stick with Sub Pop. And they, and they get a manager, Susan Silver, who's Chris Cornell's girlfriend and later wife. And it's interesting, this is another divide that Soundgarden bridges, because in the Seattle scene, there's some bands that they call Sub Pop bands, you know, epitomized by Mud Honey. Uh, and then there are Susan Silver bands, epitomized by Soundgarden and Alice in Chains. And yet Soundgarden's on both sides of that divide. Tell us about that split and Susan Silver's role in taking them national. Yeah, there seemed to have been a split uh, with bands that were professional type bands, like you just said, Soundgarden and also Alice in Chains, then later Pearl Jam, and then bands that were not as professional as Mudhoney and Nirvana and stuff like that. But I personally, I mean, I, I can see that a little bit, but... Just as a fan of music, I mean, from listening to those grunge bands since 1989, I really always loved all of them. Like I never and I know that also my friends, we, we never differentiated like, oh, we can only listen to Soundgarden and Pearl Jam. So therefore, we're not going to listen to Nirvana and the uh, 
Melvin's, we pretty much, as long as the music was good, we wanted to hear it. But yeah, I mean, you could say that, uh, well, the, the reason why Soundgarden did not stay with Sub Pop was because at the time in the late 80s, Sub Pop was struggling financially. They uh, didn't really, they couldn't pay their bands properly. And so when a band like Soundgarden that was creating a, a huge buzz, they were getting a lot of interest from several different major labels. They really had no choice but to uh, jump ship and, you know, get the w- while they had the opportunity, then that's how they signed with A&M. In fact, they, um, I think, may have already been signed to A&M when they put it as they, they made they made an agreement with A&M that they wanted to put out one more indie record with uh, SST Records, which was Black Flag's label. And that's how the uh, Ultra Mega OK album came out prior to uh, Louder Than Love. Yeah, and that was kind of a controversial practice at the time. Some people called it indie washing or, you know, and it was it was seen as a way for bands to establish their indie credibility while having the backing of a major label. And 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 it's still to this day somewhat unclear whether or not, like you said, that I believe, and I believe you're right, that they probably signed with AM and then negotiated the SST deal. Uh, but it was never something that they publicly admitted. I mean, when Ultra Mega OK hit the stores, it just said SST. And, yeah. you know, and fans like us were just like, oh, cool, another band on Greg Ginn's independent SST label. And, you know, it, it, it became clear when they, when they signed with AM. But tell us a little bit more about Susan Silver. I mean, this is a woman who's working as a manager at a shoe store, right? And she's managed the U-Men who put out a few records and toured a little bit, but didn't really make a national impact even on the underground. How did she up her game and bring Soundgarden to the big time? Yeah, I think she was working at a uh, at a used clothing store, a, a vintage clothing store, if, if I'm not, not mistaken. Bad. Yeah, I, I, I can't really remember that. I think that's what she was doing. But yeah, she had some experience uh, managing bands. And uh, yeah, because of she was dating Chris Cornell then, she started to help them out, and uh, and Kim even said that she was uh, she was very important early on because they needed someone to take the calls, to set up the tours, to set up the interviews. So obviously, she had some experience, and uh, she turned out to be, I think, a absolutely great manager. If I talk about in the book, you can often judge how good a manager is <clears throat> by the quality of tours that that manager is able to get their bands and. If you think of Soundgarden and also Alice in Chains in the early 90s, both of those bands kept getting great tour after great tour after great tour, opening up for bands that they you could see they were totally on a trajectory upward. Um, so, yeah, I mean, all those like I, I'll talk about this in the book as well, that whereas people like, say, Sharon Osbourne or, say, Peter Grant really liked the uh, limelight and kind of, you know, flaunting themselves. Susan was not that way, that she was totally behind the scenes. You never, I mean, you saw some photos of her, but to the best of my knowledge, she was never really interviewed thoroughly at the time or anything like that. So, uh, yeah, she, I think, had a huge, uh, she played a huge role in Soundgarden and just the tours they got and the breaks they got. And just, she obviously knew the, the, the timing, too, as to when an album should come out, when it shouldn't come out. So, yeah, I think Susan Silver had a huge part and the uh, ultimate success of Soundgarden. And let's talk about some of those early tours and the way that Soundgarden was initially marketed, because grunge wasn't a thing until Nevermind Breaks Big in late 1991. And so in that 
couple years prior to that, when Soundgarden's on a major label, Alice in Chains is on a major label, uh, Mother Love Bone signs to a major label, and they're trying to market these Seattle bands, but they're doing it sort of in the context of what was known as alt metal at the time. So you had bands like Soundgarden, and and they, they're touring with bands like Voivod and Prong that we don't really hear a lot about these days. But at the time, they were kind of on the cutting edge commercially or the or the metal and, and major label scenes hoped that they would be. Tell us a little bit about that and how the MTV 120 Minutes for Alternative Bands and Headbangers Wall for Metal kind of allowed Soundgarden to dip into both both channels for marketing. Yeah, Soundgarden were one of the few bands at the time that seemed to appeal to 120 Minutes viewers and also Headbangers Ball viewers. Although it seemed like for a while, uh, from say 89 through maybe 91, like right before Nirvana Nevermind came out, Soundgarden was being marketed primarily with the uh, Headbangers Ball crowd, because that's how I first saw the uh, Hands All Over video was on that program. And the first time I ever saw Soundgarden was part of that bill that was uh, headlined by Voivod, Soundgarden in the middle, and then Faith No More opening up that was before faith no more had their big hit with epic and also the album called the uh, real thing so um and then also at that time when i saw that sh uh, show which was uh, march of 1990 all three of those bands uh their albums were in the 100s of the billboard top 200 neither of those i mean excuse me none of those bands at the time of that show i to the best of my recollection were in the uh, top 100 at that point Whereas just like one or two months later, Faith No More wound up exploding and having a top 10 album. But uh, yeah, it seemed like at that point, it was probably wiser for bands to be um, more considered more of like a metal band, because then you had more of a chance, I think, at like mainstream success, because that was right at the time. That was just before Jane's Addiction hit big. And then that kind of opened up the floodgates for a lot of the alternative, alternative 120 minutes crowd. But Prior to that, it was really kind of just like hit or miss. I mean, you had R.E.M., which uh, was a 120 minutes band, and they just happened to really break big with the mainstream. And you had like The Cure and also Depeche Mode. But for every Cure and Depeche Mode, it seemed like there was like 100 alternative bands that couldn't break out of the college rock radio ghetto, so to speak. Yeah, and and... So Soundgarden is touring and opening for bands like Danzig and doing everything right um, to advance their career. But meanwhile, there's there's some personal turmoil going on. For one thing, Chris Cornell's roommate and close friend Andrew Wood, the band Mother Lovebone, ODs on heroin. And around the same time, Soundgarden's bass player, Hiro Yamamoto, decides that uh, he's had enough and he quits the band. Talk about a little bit of the turmoil that played that they were dealing with as they prepared for what would be their breakout album. Yeah. I mean, uh, it definitely is a testament to the band that they were pretty, that they, that they believe in themselves enough and also confident in themselves enough not to just buckle under and just break up. Cause obviously some bands have broken up early on when a key member leaves, but yeah, hero Yamamoto was a pretty big part of that early Soundgarden lineup. He co-wrote a lot, really, a lot of really good songs and everything like that. But uh, yeah, just he realized that touring wasn't for him. And he also wasn't, I think, a big fan of the direction of the Louder Than Love album, which I can kind of agree with him because that's probably my least favorite Soundgarden album of them all. Because as just as far as the, the production of it, I'm not the biggest fan of. It's kind of like a dated 80s metal sound. And um, the quality of the material 
although it does have some songs that are really good, it also has a lot of throwaway songs and it just seemed like that it wasn't as inspired as some, well, it, I didn't think it was as, as inspired as uh, Ultra Mega Okay. And it, and I thought uh, the album Bad Motorfinger would totally blow, blow away louder than love. So, um, yeah, just the, the fact that they were going through the uh, juggling of lineup changes, because first Hero, Hero left, then they had um, Jason, Jason, uh, excuse me, Everman. Jason, yes, there you go, Jason Everman joined. And he was only in it for like a few months. In fact, when I saw Soundgarden in March 1990, he was the bassist, uh, Jason Everman. So, um, yeah, so he was only in the band for like a few months, and then they luckily got Ben Shepard, who, interestingly enough, they tried out at the same time as Jason, but they chose Jason instead, and they realized that was a mistake. And uh, getting Ben in the band totally, I think, revitalized them and got them back on the same track that they were with Hero, because Ben is a great songwriter uh, himself. So now they had someone who they could relate to, I guess, friend-wise. They, I think, got along better with him because uh, Kim knew of him because Kim's ex-roommate uh, was a gentleman named uh, Henry Shepard, who was Ben's brother. So they kind of knew him already and knew that they would be able to get along and had the same background. So they luckily picked the uh, correct guy before it was too late. But at the same time, Andrew Woods passed away and Chris Cornell is massively affected by this. And he's also friends with the guys, uh, Stone Gossard and Jeff Amant, who are who were the part of Mother Love Bone and had been a part of Green River. And they come together and put together this project called Temple of the Dog record an album and an unknown guy named Eddie Vedder jumps in and, and sings a couple duets with Chris. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that really, that to me is the ultimate example of being in the right place at the right time with them finding someone with the talent of a, of a singer of that caliber. Cause I mean, uh, the, the two singers, Andy Wood and also Eddie Vedder were two totally different singers. Uh, Andy was very flamboyant, kind of like a Freddie Mercury type, whereas Eddie was, uh, more of like a punk rock type, uh, performer. Um, just the fact they were able to hook up with Eddie, that really, the, the, the chances, you know, cause if you think about how many times have bands tried to carry on with different singers, although Mother Love Bone didn't try to carry on, but two, two, two of the members tried to carry on but if you just think about the times that bands have tried to you know work with a new singer and a new and it always it seems to always well more times than not it seems to always fail or it just as not as good but yeah uh, jeff and stone hooking up with eddie that was uh, a very very good lucky break for them that they were able to hook up with him and then yeah and then he also it just so happens that although chris was great friends with, with andy he also became great friends with also eddie so it seemed like also for some people, Eddie, it's not that he took the spot, the, the place of Andy, but at least he may have helped lessen the blow of uh, losing a friend and also a key member of the scene like Andy. And that album, Tibble of the Dog, that, that's put out on a major label and comes out in April of 91, but it's really doesn't have any impact for over a year. And we'll come back to it um, after their breakthrough but three albums come out in the fall of 91 nirvana's bleach on dcg records and pearl jams 10 i'm forgetting which label but it was a major label and then soundgarden's bad motorfinger all come out and initially nirvana blows everybody away with a quick breakthrough with teen on the back of smells like teen spirit and then pearl jam follows up in the next few months and soundgarden has put out their best album up to that point and it does well 
and breaks through, and they kind of ride the wave of grunge to stardom, but not yet superstardom. Right, and you know, I, I just want to jump in. You said uh, you said that it was Bleach that came out in 1981. Ah, uh, yeah, my bad. Of course, of course, yeah. Um, and now I'm blanking on the the name of the Nirvana Breakthrough album. That is called that is called Nevermind. Nevermind, of course, of course. Yes. There you go. The the album of our generation, and I am so senile, I can't remember the name of it. Yeah, Bleach was their sub pop album that came out a couple years prior with Jason Everman, who had a he's on the album cover, although he didn't actually play on it. So you have one dude who's briefly in Nirvana and then briefly in Soundgarden and then later on shows up in a New York Times article talking about his career as a Navy SEAL. So uh, definitely an interesting footnote in rock history, Mr. Everman. But back to Soundgarden, they've established themselves through their touring and their appearances on Headbangers Ball and, and, you know, two well-distributed albums. I mean, Ultra Mega OK was on SST, but it was in all the record stores, just like a major label at that point. And they aren't at the very front wave of grunge. They're not on the cover of Time magazine or anything, but they're quite successful. And they and they're and they break through and it's big. But there's also the singles movie that they have a a, a song on. And I think Cornell has a speaking part in that. Am I right? Yes, he has. He has it's not so much speaking. It's just a cameo. It's a scene where Matt Dillon is. Uh testing out his car stereo system and he's in front of his, the apartment that he lives. And, uh, and Chris Cornell is, I guess, someone that lives in the apartment. He just comes down and just bopping his head in time to the music. <laughs> yeah. And, and so that to me is like sort of a classic example of Soundgarden just being in the right place at the right time with the right goods and, and breaking through. And now it's when Temple of the Dog breaks out. Now that, Pearl Jam is a superstar and Soundgarden is uh, on their way to having their first platinum album. Suddenly the record executives are like, aha, we've got something. A video comes out on MTV and Temple of the Dog is big as well. Right. Yep. It was uh, Nirvana first hitting big, then Pearl Jam and then Soundgarden. Yeah, because um, also it should be pointed out that although I'm not the hugest Guns N' Roses fan, I have to give them a lot of credit that uh, a big part of Soundgarden breaking through at that point was uh, Axl Rose was being very vocal in the press about what a big Soundgarden fan he was, and particularly a big fan he was of uh, Chris Cornell's singing. And he made it a point to have Soundgarden open up a stretch of uh, dates in the, uh, I think, beginning in December of 91, all the way through the spring, uh, playing arenas here in the States and then taking them over to Europe and playing huge uh, stadiums. So that was also what I think uh, played a huge part in breaking Soundgarden through as well. And I'm behind on my uh, song snippets, so I want to go back and play a little bit from Ultra Mega OK. This is Beyond the Wheel. on the wheel from Soundgarden's first full-length LP, Ultra Mega OK. So we're a little bit uh, ahead of ourselves as far as the musical snippets. But another big thing, they get to open for Guns N' Roses, which Nirvana had actually been invited to first and turned that down because of Cobain's 
uh, infamous feuds with Axl Rose and various political differences. But Soundgarden managed to sort of bridge that divide yet again. They're, they're a bridge band that they weren't so alternative that they couldn't open for Guns N' Roses. And I think Thale, you have a quote that makes a good point that they play for Guns, they open for Guns N' Roses, and then later that year they're on the Lollapalooza tour. And Thale actually thought that the Guns N' Roses crowds were more diverse because they had actual working class kids there as opposed to the sort of more upper middle class college types that were at Lollapalooza. How well do you think Soundgarden bridged that divide and, and reached across to sort of Ubermensch or proletariat in uh, metal fans. Well, yeah, pr- pretty well because out of all those uh, grunge bands, I think Sound. Well, besides Alice in Chains, uh, Soundgarden had probably the most links to metal. I'd say Alice in Chains and Soundgarden were probably the two most metal bands uh, from that uh, scene in uh, Seattle. So, yeah, and just the fact that Soundgarden for the past year or two their videos had been being played they were being played on uh, headbangers ball so some of the fans may have even heard of soundgarden before but yeah but that was a pretty interesting quote that uh, i never really thought of it that way that uh i think he compared playing on lapalooza in 1992 to playing with guns and roses in 91 92 and he said that the uh guns and roses crowd was actually more diverse which i wouldn't have thought that but now that I think about it, I could definitely see his point. And obviously, he would know better than anyone because he was the one that experienced both those tours. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit more about that Lollapalooza tour. I think this was the second or third Lollapalooza. Uh, James second. Perry, second. Perry Farrell of, of Jane's Addiction had started it, and they headlined the first one and had bands uh, like Ice-T and the Butthole Surfers on there. And then for the second year, it's headlined by the Red Hot Chili Peppers out of L.A. We've also got Pearl Jam. You've got the industrial band Ministry. And you've got Ice Cube. I mean, it really did kind of collect and symbolize the breakthrough of alternative music, not just white alternative music, but also the connections with hip hop with Ice Cube and Ice-T on the first one. And the the punk funk silence of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, which were coming out of the same L.A. scene that had produced Jane's Addiction. Talk a little bit about the cultural impact of Lollapalooza and what it meant in the 90s. Well, well it did have a impact, no question. But then it also kind of um, marketed it. So now people that, uh, you know, they just flip on the TV and they suddenly want to, like, just experience what this is like. And then you go to these shows and I can tell just from my experiences at this point, suddenly like mosh pits got very violent and very, very dangerous. Like I remember I saw a show in the fall of 91 when I was going to college at uh, Stony Brook in here in New York. It was a show. It was co-headlined by Primus and also Fishbone. And I remember clearly seeing people getting taken out on stretchers from the, the mosh pit. And I think this was a rumor. I don't know if it was ever confirmed that someone was paralyzed or had some kind of serious uh, injury because of that. So, I mean, suddenly you go from maybe thing, well, well, suddenly people are going by what they're seeing in, 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 in media. And they think that, you know, violent slam dancing and moshing and crowd surfing is some kind of form of like self expression or something. And someone that maybe just one month ago was a big poison fan now suddenly is wearing flannels and wearing Doc Martens. You know, it just that type of thing happens. But that, I think, happens with just about almost any kind of movement. There's always people that were going to jump on the bad wa- bandwagon sort of thing. So there was definitely a, a plus and also minus thing with uh, 
Lollapalooza because uh, I remember Chris uh, Cornell has a good quote in this book, Dark, Black and Blue, the Soundgarden story, where he says uh, something to like that with Lollapalooza that they were praising uh, Perry. But then meanwhile, Perry Farrell is making money off of parking and stuff like that. You know, but then, <laughs> you know, but then he's talking. But then Perry Farrell makes it seem like, oh, you know, at Lollapalooza, we have all these booths set up and we're you know promoting all these different forward ideas but meanwhile you know like chris said he's you know meanwhile pocketing money from parking from people so you know there was like that type of thing but i mean overall i think that law blues was a uh, you know good thing and just it, it uh, definitely without a question helped it helped popularize the whole entire alternative and also grunge movement at the time yeah and i'm glad you brought that up because that paradox of feeling like you know, this underground scene had been bubbling under through the 80s. And, and you know, I was part of it in Texas, like you were in New York. And and there was this feeling like, you know, we're coming, we're coming, we're getting bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger. And then, you know, Nirvana breaks through with Smells Like Teen Spirit. And there was even a quote, I think, in the New York Times of somebody saying, we won. But then the net effect of that was it didn't change the sort of jocks and meatheads that had been listening to Poison in any real way. It's just now they were in our clubs beating us up. Right. And, uh, so, yeah, it was it was a mixed blessing. And it ultimately devolves into Woodstock 99 and the whole just really ugly uh, spectacle of the violence that went on there. But Soundgarden manages to stay sort of above the fray. I mean, they're essentially workaholics this whole period. I mean, they go on the road in 89 and stay on the road with a few breaks for the lineup changes, but they are just heads down driving through. And even though Cornell was impacted by the heroin overdose of his friend, Andy Wood, they seemed at the, at least at this point, stay out of the worst excesses of Seattle at the time. But when they're working on their follow-up super unknown, Kurt Cobain is completely melting down on the other side of the planet. And so super unknown drops and it's, you know, I think recognized the Soundgarden's greatest album, certainly the most commercially successful, but it comes out right before Cobain's death. Talk a little bit about that underbelly of Seattle and how it did eventually impact Soundgarden. Yeah, well, I remember just reading uh, just reading articles at the time, and they would allude to the fact that Kurt Cobain was struggling with heroin and that heroin was still part of the whole Seattle thing. And I, I never really bought into it too much because I know at the time when you would read interviews with uh, Kurt Cobain, like there was an interview, there was a cover story on of he was on the cover with the two other guys from Nirvana. I think it was Rolling Stone from January 94. And he's saying how he had a heroin problem, but now he's totally done with it and things are so good and like all this stuff. And it turned out to be total bullshit that he obviously that it, we, we later found out that he was still very badly addicted to heroin. And as we all know, just just I think it was three months later, he wound up killing himself. So but uh, Kurt Cobain's death definitely did take this, uh, the, the wind out of the sails of uh, it just seemed like of all of the whole entire rock music thing at that point just got all discombobulated and then it was right around the time green day hit big and then you have this whole pop punk thing that suddenly got very popular which i personally couldn't really i i i never got behind and uh, then as the years go on then it just kind of devolves into the whole then we're back to strippers and uh, fred durst and like you know all this type of bullshit so it's funny how just things devolved once it, you know, it seemed like uh, Kurt Cobain's death just it, that, that, 
it seemed like to a certain degree, Kurt Cobain, Kurt Cobain was like the conscience. And then as soon as he died, everyone just, not everyone, but then suddenly a lot of people just went back to uh, old uh, methods and old, you know, misogynistic type things. So that's kind of sad. But again, that that's that's happened in the past. That happened with the uh, first wave of punk with the Sex Pistols and the Ramones. Everyone thought that they were going to totally take over the world and they probably could have. But then the Sex Pistols wound up imploding and then suddenly we we wind up with new wave bands, which I actually do like quite a quite a few of those early new wave bands. And then it eventually just becomes like Duran Duran and then it becomes just MTV, you know, approved bands. So sadly, that just happened again with all the uh, grunge bands. It just suddenly devolved into bands copying grunge bands. And then it just kept kept getting worse and worse to a certain degree. But for Soundgarden, Super Unknown comes out and it's their most polished pop record. I mean, they're suddenly they're showing Beatles influences and Chris Cornell has really come to the fore as a singer. His vocals are mixed differently, so they're not quite as buried in the mix. They're more floating above. And they write it out with a series of hit singles and videos that carry them through the whole summer and the whole year. They even win Grammy Awards and MTV Awards. How did that impact the band personally? Well, I mean, I, I have to disagree that I don't think Super Unknown was really polished. It was, I think, more kind of focused. Um, and, and, and also the thing with Super Unknown, just the quality of the material was so much stronger than, say, like Louder Than Love. So you put together just the quality of the material and it being focused and that they also hooked up with the producer, Michael, uh, Michael Beinhorn, who also was able to get a good sound for them. So I think those three things are really key to that. But um the thing that also happens is, although they do score a number one hit with that album, and uh, I talk about in the book, people uh, actually said that, well, I, I think I'd say it in the book that 1994 could be talked about as the year of Soundgarden, because they were probably the biggest rock band that year, as far as just success on the charts and also on MTV and also radio. So they, they're having all this uh, incredible success, but then what's going on behind the scenes is uh, Chris Cornell starts having vocal problems on tour and they have to cut the tour short. Uh, Kurt Cobain's death kind of, kind of kicked everyone in the gut. Um, that was also a very big blow. And then also just the band, uh, the, the band wasn't really getting along as well as they could have or, or, or as well as they used to. I know Matt, Matt Cameron in the book talks about how he felt the fabric of the band started to kind of become um, undone at that point. He talks about Ben on stage. Ben later admits that he started to also uh, drink too much at that point because he was going through a breakup with his uh, wife, girlfriend or wife. I forget if it was a girlfriend or wife, but he was going through a bad breakup and he started drinking a lot. And I remember going to see Soundgarden on that tour and he was arguing with someone in the audience and he was spitting in the audience. So it's, and that wasn't just one episode uh, Matt talks about in the book, but that, and also Susan talked about it in the book, that that was a pretty common thing to happen each night was uh, Ben flying off the handle. So you have things like that happening. And then also uh, Susan talks about in the book that it was around that time that um, uh, Chris started to suffer from, I think it was Mac depression, and he turned to alcohol and I believe also uh, some kind of drugs, but it's never been really confirmed what drugs. I think it was like pills and stuff. So he started to self-medicate himself and then he eventually wound up landing in a uh, rehab probably about six or seven years later, I think, uh, or maybe, maybe even five years. I, I forget the, the timeline exactly. 
But all, yeah, so pretty much what I'm what I'm getting at is that although Soundgarden, that the Super Unknown album was their most commercially successful album, and I think is one of the greatest rock albums ever, that you could say was the beginning of the end for Soundgarden. And let's go ahead and hear. I'm I'm still behind on my song, so we'll hear something um, from Bad Motorfinger. This is a live version of "Searching with My Good Eye Closed" from 1992. Searching with my good eye closed live from 1992, which preceded the point we're talking about. I got to polish my uh, song timing better. But um, the Super Unknown is this massive hit. But like you said, the personal undercurrents, the guys are getting worn out and the, and the drug abuse and the drinking is beginning to become a factor. And when they reconvene for their next album, the magic just isn't there anymore. Yeah, I mean, the Down, the Down on the Upside album, which came out in 1996, uh, I remember liking it a lot when it came out. Then um, I would listen back to it and say, eh, you know, it's not as good as Super Unknown and also Bad Motor Finger. And I kind of think that way even right to this day. And something that I talk about in the book, Dark, Black and Blue, the Soundgarden story is Down on the Upside is an album that I always think of. Eh, it's, it, it, it's good, but it's not as good as uh, Bad Motor Finger or Super Unknown. But then whenever I, act, whenever I actually sit down and listen to it, I'm always reminded that it is actually still a very, very good album. It's just that maybe there's like one or two things missing, but it still is a, a great album. And it's and it, and it absolutely blows away the uh, majority of bands, especially if you listen to a lot of the albums that were coming out in 1996. I mean, that's when Metallica put out that horrible Load album. I think that uh, Down on the Upside totally blows away that album and also stands up a lot better. If you listen to those two albums today and look at what the bands were trying to do and accomplish at that point, I think that Soundgarden definitely, Soundgarden music in 1996 definitely holds up a hell of a whole lot better than what Metallica was doing at that time. But personally, the band was falling apart and they ultimately break up. Yes, they broke up in early 1997. Yeah, they uh, were not seeing eye to eye during the recording of the, of the album. Um, they started off working on the album. Well, just to back up, in the summer of 1995, uh, they made up a European tour that got canceled when Chris Cornell was having vocal troubles in late 94. They, they made up the dates in 95. And um, there's a quote from Steve Turner from the band uh, Mud Honey that actually toured with Soundgarden on that tour. And he said that uh, they were taken aback with how badly Soundgarden's members were getting along with each other, that they weren't talking to each other. They looked like they were totally miserable to be uh, playing at that point. So, I mean, that right there shows that things weren't really going that well at that point. And then uh, Kim talks about in the book that they started demoing material at that point. And then the demoing, they were demoing the material in uh, a studio. It was Chris and also Matt were working on demos. And they liked the sound of the demos so much that they decided to make that the actual album. So it went from taking their time and trying to demo material to then suddenly we're now working on an album. And I don't think that the member, or at least not all the members were fully ready because I know Kim only had one song that he wrote on that whole entire album, whereas in the past he would have a lot of co-writes and songs he would solely write. 
So uh, that, I think, uh, led to more problems. And then that carried over. They did a co-headline uh, of uh, Lollapalooza that year in 96 with uh, Metallica and also Soundgarden. And um, Matt talked about that things were so bad on that tour that he actually considered just totally leaving the band at that point. But he didn't. He stuck it out. But once that uh, they, they Soundgarden continued touring throughout early 97 and then they decided just to break up. It was in the I think the spring of uh, 97 that they decided to pull the plug. And that's like you said, it was part of a general malaise in the rock scene at that point. And I, I think um, at times in with after the death of Kurt Cobain, the record companies kind of figured out how to clone grunge. They just, you know, for a while there had just been this panoply of different styles and, and alternative music was coming from all different directions and it was hard for the record companies to get a handle on it. But after Cobain died, they decided, you know, ah, this is the formula and they run out, you know, candle box, et cetera, et cetera. And, and just band after band like that. And then the pop punk thing kind of fades and the, like you mentioned, Metallica is, is in their decline. And so Soundgarden kind of ended with a whimper uh, rather than a bang. But Cornell goes on to have a solo career and also gets with the guys from Rage and the Machine who've lost their lead vocalist and forms a group called Audio Slave. Tell us a little bit about Audio Slave and how they, uh, how they fared in the early knots. Right. Well, uh, Audio Slave did have a lot of commercial success. Uh, and in fact, if I if I remember correctly, I think they had two number one albums, which is actually more than Soundgarden. Soundgarden had just one number one album, which was super unknown. So they uh, rage. I mean, excuse me. Audio Slave did have a lot of commercial success and they were really being pushed at the time by the uh, record label, I remember. But I have to be honest, uh, not a huge fan of Audio Slave. Uh, their first album I thought was OK. But um, I and I talk about this in the book that whenever I would hear Audio Slave, the only thing I could think of was, wow, I wish this was Soundgarden that I was listening to or Soundgarden that I was seeing. I saw Audio Slave twice during that time and they were, you know, good. But again, not on par with seeing Soundgarden on the Super Unknown tour or anything like that, you know. So, um, I, you know, I, I give them credit that they uh, were able to put out a few albums and they also. I know Chris Cornell credits the guys in Audio Slave for helping him out just with, because he was, Chris Cornell was struggling at the time, and I know he had to go to rehab, and uh, he formed Audio Slave just prior to going to rehab, and he gives those guys a lot of credit for staying by him. So I think that that was obviously a, a good thing, because who knows what would have happened if uh, he didn't have those guys to be able to uh, lean on at that point. But yeah, I mean, again, uh, I don't, I don't hate Audio Slave, but for me, you know, I'm always going to listen to Soundgarden before I'm going to listen to a Audio Slave uh, song. Yeah, I always think of the group Velvet Revolver when I think of Audio Slave. That was a super group of ex Guns N' Roses and Stone Temple Pilots guys that got together and sort of filled that same niche. It was touring and they were putting out records and they were giving the music business something to sell, but it wasn't really the best work of those performers and and it wasn't really capturing the spirit of the times either. And so towards the end of the knots, though, Soundgarden, even though they had broken up pretty acrimoniously and long denied that they were ever going to get back together, they did get back together, and they had a pretty good run in the 2010s. Yes. And yeah, I talk about in the book, uh, one thing that'll probably remain my top journalistic highlight ever is um, I was writing for the Rolling Stone website. Uh, this is like... Uh, a few, few years before Soundgarden, maybe like one or two years before Soundgarden got back together, I was writing for the 
Rolling Stone website, and I interviewed uh, Kim Thiel. I think it was um, uh, there was a rumor at the time that they were going to work on a box set of songs that never came out, which sadly never has come out, and hopefully one day it, it one day will come out. But um, I was speaking to him for that, and I talked and I asked him. I said, uh, "Would you ever consider getting back together with Soundgarden?" And he wasn't totally opposed to the idea, and he later told me that um, he credits that uh, that specific interview with helping to get the ball rolling with what eventually became the Soundgarden reunion, because he said the other members read that and they read what he said and they took that as a positive sign that he was not totally opposed to it, that he was that he was yeah, that he was in favor of it. So that for me, just as a Soundgarden fan, I'll always be happy that that article at least maybe got discussions started with should we get back together? That type of thing. So that's something that I'll always uh, pat my I'll, I'll I'll pat myself on the back for that. Yeah, it's fun when you're uh, a journalist reporting on history and then you inadvertently make some history. And I want to get one last song in. This is one you identify as your favorite. This is a uh, Fourth of July, and this is a live version from the 2014 reunion tour in London. Soundgarden doing a late version of Fourth of July off the Super Unknown album in 2014. We have to end on a tragic note because in the midst of one of their reunion tours, Chris Cornell dies suddenly. Tell us about that and what do you think led to that and what's the impact of that death been? Yeah, I mean, to me, you know, I talk about in the book, the the whole reason why I really did this book, uh, Dark, Black and Blue, the Soundgarden story was because um, it's still to this day, I feel the uh, the uh, effects of uh, Chris Cornell's death just because I was such a fan of his music. And, um, you know, there's just certain artists that you just just connect with. And I really connected with Chris Cornell's music and what he had to say and his talent. He was a a absolutely uh, incredible talent. Um, I personally put Chris Cornell uh, in the same category as your John Lennon's and your Jimi Hendrix's and your Freddie Mercury's that he was that talented and he's the type of artist that only comes along every so often. Uh, so, yeah, that that to me, his uh, death was a huge, huge uh, blow. I mean, then the fact that I was also friend, you know, I, I still am friends with Kim and I'm also acquaintances with the uh, other Soundgarden members. It was just incredibly sad to be thinking about what also those guys must be going through. That was also part of it. And then also to think of Chris Cornell's family, what they must be going through, that was incredibly sad. And then just from a total uh, selfish point of view, just as being a huge fan of Soundgarden's music, realizing that I was never going to be able to see Soundgarden live again, because I had seen them on those reunion tours and they were still great. I thought that that King Animal album was really great, too. And uh, and I remember corresponding with Matt Cameron on Facebook at the time about the material they were working on. And he, uh, I think I, it, I, I asked something about like, how is the new material or something? And he says, wait till you hear it. And he used a icon emoji of a, a fist making a punch. So, <laughs> so I, I took that as a sign that I thought that the next album was going to be really great. You know, I thought they were going to be able to build on the King Animal album. 
So just, you know, those things are really just sad. I mean, what drove uh, Chris to do what he did? Sadly, we'll probably never know. I mean, we know he had uh, a history of struggling with substance abuse and uh, that type of thing. And he also, as uh, Susan Silver talks about in the book, he also had uh, depression problems. So, uh, yeah, it just, it's, you know, just uh, still sad. Still, it's still a sad thing. I mean, I personally had trouble listening, even listening to Soundgarden's music for a while after that. But and, and then also now that I listen to his music, his lyrics sometimes take on a whole different point of view. Like when after, you know, like what happened with him and everything. So it's just sad. The whole thing is sad. But luckily, we still have the music. So, you know, like all the great performers will be able to listen to Soundgarden music till till the, the end of time. Hopefully. And and. One last thing I want to get out there is for me, the, the Chris Cornell's death was just such a final kick in the teeth because, you know, you had Andy Wood of Mother Love Bone die in 1990. You had Kurt Cobain kill himself in 1994. Allison Chains Lane died just a really lonely, tragic death uh, in the 2000s. I think he was dead for two weeks in his condo before anybody went to check on him. And and Cornell was the one that seemed like a survivor and ha- had always kind of floated above that. And now there's only Eddie Vedder left of that crop of, you know, the big four Seattle bands. And I just hope nothing happens to him because it was really a blow for me as, as a Gen Xer when Cornell died, that somebody that I had thought had made it through those struggles and, and it just seems like depression and drug abuse will get you in the end one way or the other so that's kind of a bummer way to end uh, uh otherwise very fun episode greg uh the book is uh, dark dark black and blue the Soundgarden story by greg prado thanks so much for coming on the show we have to hope to have you back on to talk about some of your many other books great thank you i appreciate it and i was going to say too if yeah i have a bunch of other books i have actually 30 books out if you could believe that so if anyone wants to Check out my other books. Go on Amazon.com uh, and do a search for Greg Prado because I have done books uh, on the grunge scene, a book called Grunge is Dead. I've done books on Pearl Jam, Kiss, Iron Maiden, Yacht Rock, uh, Shredders. I've done a huge amount of books. And if you want to check out uh, my latest articles, because I'm always doing interviews and writing articles and reviews for other websites and magazines, you can check me out on Twitter. That's uh, Twitter.com slash Greg Prado writer. I'm always posting my latest uh, things on that. All right, Greg. Thanks for coming on the show and we hope to have you back. Great. Thanks again. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Come back next week when Gurdeep Ladar and Justin Galsman of the TCB cast join Nate to wrap up their discussion of Elvis Presley's life and career. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Dark Black and Blue, The Soundgarden Story is independently published by the author. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.